The coronavirus pandemic has brought inspired scenes of heroic healthcare providers engaged in an all-out effort to save lives. But what about helping those at the end of life have a good death? Many of those dying from COVID-19 are elderly patients in hospital intensive care units connected to ventilators and other life support technology. It's become a grim coda for many who have fallen victim to this horrible disease. It also raises a lot of very difficult questions about death and dying in America. It's a subject we are not particularly good at dealing with, according to Dr. David Duong. He's a primary care physician and internist at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and director of the Program in Global Primary Care and Social Change at Harvard Medical School. I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by David Duong on this episode of the CODcast. Welcome. Thank you so much, Michael, um, and to the podcast audience for having me here. You've spent a lot of time thinking about end-of-life issues. What is the coronavirus pandemic bringing out about that issue that strikes you most? I, I think that what the coronavirus is bringing out is that it's a crisis for us, and it is a disease that um, predominantly affects older Americans and older people in general and um, uh, those who are at high risk for death already. Um, so because of that, we're really confronted with the issues that have um, constantly surrounded our society regarding death and dying, but that we've really um, not focused too much on and ignored. Crises have a way of bringing to the forefront issues that are easy to ignore in normal times. And um, because of that, I think that this is a um, really important issue to discuss is um, death, dying, and, 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 and how we honor the wishes of our patients. And I can highlight this with an example. So I'm an internist, and, um, and so I do, um, so some of my training was um, involved in intensive care. And with the coronavirus outbreak, especially here in Boston, it um, is really all, all hands on deck. So I've been doing some shifts at um, the ICU at my hospital, and it's just amazing to me when I walk into the ICU and I see the amount of patients who are on ventilators and on medications to support their life. And predominantly, most of these patients are, in my experience, elderly. And a lot of them initially were um, what we call full, full code, which means that they um, were having every type of medical intervention done for them to, um, to sustain their life, which meant um, a breathing tube and being on a ventilator. But it also means when, um, when and if their heart were to stop uh, beating, that we would do resuscitation, which means chest compressions, quite hard chest compressions, where that could lead to the breaking of ribs to restart their heart. And I think that as I looked at this patient population and thinking about their likelihood of survival, um, I really wondered, is this the end of life that these patients would have wanted? Is this the end of life that their families would have wanted? And have these conversations ever been talked about? And one memory really sticks out with me. And I was on an overnight shift in the ICU. 
and we had a very elderly, very frail patient come in from a nursing home um, with COVID, and she was intubated. Meaning put on a ventilator with a breathing tube. Yeah, that, that they, she was put on the ventilator. She had a um, breathing tube put in her by our emergency doctors in the um, emergency department. And, I, and before receiving her, I asked the emergency physician who I was receiving the patient from, why did we intubate this patient? And he said, well, the, the, the family wanted, and wanted everything done for her, and they kept insisting that. And I said, and, and I was just kind of blown away because this patient had a lot of medical um, comorbidities, which meant she had a lot of underlying disease and illness. Um, and, um, and, and, and it was, to me, it was just a very sad situation because more often than not, we see that these patients ultimately end up dying. Um, so I said, wow, okay, and you're sure this is what the family wanted? And they said, yes, um, this is what they wanted. I talked to them, but, you know, obviously I didn't get a chance to talk to them for a long period of time because I'm dealing with many, many patients down here, which I completely understand. And I said, okay, um, of course, we'll receive her in the ICU. So she comes up to the ICU and I, um, while my nursing colleagues were settling her in, I called the family back and this was around 5 to 15 in the morning. And I spoke with one of the family members and I said, I've, I, I have your mom here and I would, um, and I just want to clarify some goals of care for you, uh, for her with you, because I see that you're the decision maker. Um, you know, she has a breathing tube in right now, but what about if her heart were to stop beating? And the question I got back was, well, what if her heart stops beating? And I said, well, she's technically a full code right now, meaning we would do everything. But the family member didn't know what that meant. So I kind of had to walk them through the process again. And, um, and once I did that, they said, okay, well, we still want you to do everything. And I said, let me be clear again. This is the process of chest compressions if her heart were to stop beating and I could break ribs and it's going to be very painful and it uh, and it's going to even if she does per- survive it which means even if her heart were to stop were to start beating again I don't think that given her other underlying health conditions and how sick she is right now that she would actually be able to leave the hospital um like this is what we have in front of us and this is the situation and the healthcare um, decision maker said, wow, I didn't realize that. No, please don't do that to her. Um, we just want her to be comfortable. And, what, and, and when, I left the emergency, uh, when I left that shift, I walked out and I, I, I was just stunned um, at how is that the first time that, that family members are hearing about what, the, what full code means and that this conversation's being had, um, given this patient that was already very sick in a nursing facility that had a very high chance of dying, regardless of COVID, um, why is this the first time? So, so I, so I think that that really um, speaks to the gravity of the situation um, of really thinking about how we want to die and making sure that we communicate that to our loved ones or people who we've assigned medical decision-making for us. Um, And what the COVID epidemic has done is because of the specific 
elderly population that's more affected by it, it, um, it, it, it has really brought this issue to the forefront. And that's, I mean, it's such a powerful story. And I think, I think it's really also important for listeners, I think also for us to be clear that while this has been, you know, a, a, a disease that has really hit elderly populations hard, we've seen horrible stories about it ravaging, uh, you know, nursing homes in the state. And, and, and so there's a real difference between us doing everything we can to stop that, that sort of spread in those facilities and also to providing, you know, the best care possible uh, for older people who then may need to be hospitalized. But I, I think what you're getting at is not whether you sort of provide all the care you can. It, it really comes down to what happens to the smaller set of, of patients who really deteriorate to this point where, where, where uh, you need to start, you know, doing really, really kind of uh, extreme interventions in order to support them at that age. And that's, it seems like what you're getting at that is that, is that so many of us in this country, uh, even people who are, you know, over 80 have not had those kind of conversations or their family hasn't. And so, um, you know, and there, and there is a, you know, there is some, some evidence starting to mount that kind of speaks to this. I know just this week, uh, a report, uh, came out, uh, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, looking at the first experience in New York City area hospitals, a dozen or so hospitals that had, I think, five or 600 patients. Um, and of those who, uh, in the study, who, who, who deteriorated the point they needed a ventilator, the survival was, um, was under 20%. And it was, and it was far lower. Uh, I mean, it was astonishing, I think, 3% of those over 65. And I mean, and the paper said, they almost all had a lot of other uh, health issues or, you know, comorbidities, as you say, but it does kind of uh, drive home that point about, um, about who it is that is getting to that final stage of needing that kind of level of support. And, um, and, and the fact that, you know, it appears that a lot of the patients presumably have not had those kind of uh, end of life uh, directives, or or if they have, I guess maybe for some, the 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 directive was to be, as you say, sort of full code. Yeah, I think that um, you know, I, I I don't think what we're talking about here is should a patient um, get um, a ventilator or have resuscitation efforts or not. I I think that we as a society have been um, quite resistant and quite hesitant to have conversations around death and dying because just because of our cultural context around it and how it's, you know, it's the end, it's the final, it's a defeat um, as medical uh, professionals and as in, med- in, a, in our medical care system, it is giving up, it's the last thing. And I think we need a reframe or a reshift of that to that dying is really, you know, the next stage of life and it's the next chapter and how do we want to be in control of how that next stage happens. When I talk to a lot of patients um, before COVID and even during COVID um, or um, to their family members, they say, well, we really want a merciful death. We really want a quick death um, so that they're not in pain. And people are are very concerned about being uncomfortable and being in pain. Um, And what I think we don't realize is that because of the medical advances and the medical technologies, we're able to keep people alive now in ways that we 
never imagined possible before. And that introduces a lot of uncomfortable um, ethical ambiguities and decisions for both the healthcare staff, but also for the families. Um, because patients then, when they are um, at the end of life, on a ventilator, in a coma, um, not responsive, um, they've basically given those choices of how they want to die to other people, whether it be a medical professional or a, a family member. And, um, and it's really important to communicate um, that prior um, and, uh, and, and, and for everyone to do that so that um, your wishes um, are respected and honored um, at, the, at the end. Right. And I know you, uh, you've written uh, about this in one of the essays uh, that you've uh, authored on the topic that, uh, that one element uh, that people may not have paid a lot of attention to of the Affordable Care Act was a provision that allowed for the first time I think uh, Medicare reimbursement for uh, physicians for physician visits that involve, uh, you know, I guess what might be called advanced care planning or end of life conversations, and that and that that provision in the Affordable Care Act was presumably there, you know, inserted to try to encourage uh, more of this. Uh, can you just talk a little about what's your been your experience? Have have we have we kind of seized on that? Uh, uh, that opportunity, I guess you might say, that the that the law that the law provided, and the effort behind it to try to, I think, push this conversation more, you know, into uh, American medicine and how we how we think about healthcare. Yeah, um, I think that with the passage of the ACA and that provision, um, that it allows for doctors, like you said, to um, to be able to bill Medicare for that. And um, have we seized on it? Personally, I don't think we have. Um, I think that I, I still see when I work in the hospital inpatient um, wards, um, and as an example with this, um, uh, with these ICU shifts that I've done um, for COVID, there's still a lot of questions. There's still a lot of ambiguity. There's still a lot of fear around death and um, uncomfortable conversations. I think that what I was, uh, what I started doing in 2016 um, as a primary care physician is I would go through my list of um, primary care patients and um, really identify those that I thought had a high chance of dying or that were over the age of 80 and, um, and, 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 and really scheduled visits for them. And these um, to talk about advanced care directives. And I felt that Initially, a lot of people were quite hesitant because they were scared. But when I reframed it to be like, uh, when I reframed it to say that this is just, you know, us treat it as, as, as the same way as how we would manage your hypertension or your diabetes, you know, treat it as an, like an, an, another issue that we have to manage, but we have to talk about this because we need you, like, we want you to be in control and we want your wishes respected. And once, and, and once I reframed it like that, I think it was easier. And what I realized with a lot of my patients and these were terminal, terminal cancer patients, or these were very elderly patients, um, what they realized was that it was kind of like a weight being lifted off and they could just, and, and, and now they, and, and after that conversation, after it was documented, um, they could breathe 
and it was like this huge weight being lifted off and it was actually much better to talk about this because they could really communicate this. One of the things I learned is that it's not just enough for me as a primary care physician to talk about it with the patient, but now what I what I've started doing is involved is um, to these specific meetings on advanced care directives, inviting family members to join those that they've assigned health decision making to, to join so that everyone is on the same page. Because I think that's really important. Sometimes the patients have an idea of what they would like, but then other family members may not um, either agree with that or may not know about it. So it's really important that we bring um, other um, people who are family members, friends, or people who that, uh, the, 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 the patient would like to involve. Um, and, and that's been really nice. But I, I, but I don't think that we've seized upon this. And this is what we're seeing with the COVID um, pandemic right now. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, it, it was interesting that uh, there has been a lot of concern in this country about whether uh, we were going to deplete our resources, uh, our critical care resources. You know, would we have enough ventilators for patients? And, uh, you know, it's led to these discussions about guidelines around how we would allot those in the, in the event that the, there was a shortage, uh, really difficult questions uh, of that kind. We're now seeing, at least here in Massachusetts at the present time, that, 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 that those fears do not seem to be, uh, you know, being realized. We don't think that we're going to have that shortage. And so the question isn't really whether we have the resources for everyone. But I think, again, it, it, it maybe again, now even more so sort of turns the question to the things that you've been raising. It's not, do we have to make a tough decision, you know, based on limited resources? It's, it's what would be the best thing, you know, for individual patients, um, you know, in at this, for this stage of their life and given, uh, you know, what they might be confronting in terms of the illness. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that the resource question is a good one because thankfully in Massachusetts um, and also at my hospital, we haven't had to, um, in my experience, deal with, um, you know, the, the, the resources in terms of do we have enough ventilators or not, or do we have enough ICU beds or not. But I think that um, that's like physical resources. But I think that not having these conversations beforehand, and especially now, takes a lot um, of emotional resources. So there's been studies that show that physicians who have to work with patients whose family members have to make decisions for them or to have to go between, like physicians who have to go between siblings or nurses, they experience higher levels of moral, of, of, of distress um, if there's never been a conversation about that. And I definitely felt that when I was having these repeat conversations with different family members and this sister wants that, but that brother thought that this was not an issue. And as a healthcare provider, you're stuck in the middle and you have to educate, but you also have to do, um, but you also have to make multiple phone calls and try to get everyone on a conference call. And 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 that's quite hard, not only because it's a time resource taken away from me to provide care to other patients, but it's also, it's a distress for me as well as just a person to have to also handle this situation. And then we also know that for the family members who have to make the life or death decisions in an ICU when they've had no conversation about this with the patient or with other people, that they do experience this post-traumatic stress where they become depressed, where they're anxious, where there's so much guilt because at the end of the day, someone has to really make that decision. 
And then they have to live with this guilt that, oh, it is, oh, oh my gosh, I pulled the plug on dad or I, you know, was the one to make the decision to let mom die or something like that. And that's a really big weight. So how can we lift the weight both for our healthcare providers, but also for our family members to prevent us from having to, um, to have these conversations in the first place? I just want to read uh, from uh, an essay that you wrote uh, five years ago for the Huffington Post, a really great essay. And the framing is kind of thinking about our lives as a story, in a sense, that, that we write. And you wrote in your essay, death is an inevitable event that will happen. And as authors of our own stories, let us attempt to write that chapter as well. And just tell me, what, what, you know, what do you mean by that? Um, I think what I meant by that is that, you know, we, we have the ability to, um, to, to decide how, um, we would like that last chapter to be written, which is death. I think that that's the first distinguishing thing is that I really believe that death is another chapter and it's not the end. It's not, it's, it's not the last page of the book, but it's another chapter in the book. Um, and how we want to frame that in terms of is it is there an afterlife or is it that uh, is, is is that chapter made of stories of for the people that we leave behind, um, you know whatever religious or, um, or 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 otherwise other belief we have, but it is another chapter in our book and in our story, and to the extent possible, how do we want that chapter to begin, or how do we want the previous chapter to end? There's a lot of resources out there for family members and for patients um, and for our community in general to start having this conversation. The first is that you can definitely contact and should contact your primary care provider um, and say that you want to have an advanced care directive um, appointment. The second is the conversationproject.org um, or prepareforyourcare.org. And then residents of Massachusetts can go online to www m-o-l-s-t-m-a.org, where they can download what we call the MOST form, which is the Medical Orders for Sustaining Life Treatment. Um, and that can help having, um, start the conversation as well. Well, Dr. David Wong, I want to thank you so much for talking to us on the podcast. It's been a great conversation. And, and it's one that I know, uh, you know people might say is a, is a grim, uh, difficult conversation. But I think as you have tried to frame frame it. It shouldn't be thought of that way. Well, again, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me um, on and to share my opinions and views.